Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out the radio version of the show every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on WDJY 99.1 in Atlanta. We also air on a podcasting network in Los Angeles called the 405 Media. There's a TV version of the show that airs on KMVT 15 in Silicon Valley at 8 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday nights. Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. I want to invite all of you in the Building the Future community to join me at SUPEX, the Startup Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, this July 26th, where I'll be the MC. SUPEX is one of the largest and best startup conferences in the U.S. and the official gathering of the Building the Future community this summer. SUPEX has cutting-edge content, a cool startup competition, and a half-day forum this year called Hashtag Women for Women, the largest gathering in the U.S. in 2018 of angel groups, seed funds, and BC funds focused on female founders and female entrepreneurs. For more information, visit www.sup-x.org. I hope to see all my Building the Future friends there. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Rachel braun Sherl. She's an entrepreneur, a vagipreneur, and business builder. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back on the show. We had a really good chat last time, and you're, you've done an incredible amount of things. You're doing some really incredible things. You have a book coming out. But maybe before we get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. So I grew I was born in the Midwest, which people always laugh about because if you, you know, you hear my voice and hear my style and uh, speed, I don't seem very Midwestern in, uh, at all. I seem very New York and stereotypical. <laughs> I was born in Detroit and I was raised in northern New Jersey. Okay. And I've lived, you know, many different places um, in the country and around the world. And I raised my family back in New Jersey. And... Uh, Use that as my base for doing whatever I do with clients uh, around the world. No, I, I think that's really great. So you, you went to Duke University, is that is that correct? That's accurate, and I studied psychology and human development. Okay, what made you want to take that? Well, I thought I wanted to be a therapist, Okay. Um, which I, I, I realized that I did want to be a therapist when one of the requirements for going on to graduate school and getting an undergraduate degree in psychology is you had to work in a, uh, a hospital with a lot of people with brain injuries. And oh, I realized that, you know, that that required a certain kind of person. Okay. And I didn't think that I was that kind of person. And I think deep down I was always meant to be in business. My dad was in business um, my whole life, and we always had conversations about strategy. Okay. Um, my mom was a therapist, so I thought that's what I wanted to do. Interesting. But it became clear pretty quickly that I was destined much more for business than uh, psychology, although many people would say it does help you in terms of having some basic understanding of, of human behavior, but I, I wouldn't go much further than that. You know, it still requires you to be an extraordinary listener and think about how the other person feels and all those skills are valuable. Sure. And, and then you ended up getting your MBA, correct? Yes. I went to a public relations firm right okay. out after college. I was what they call the poet, meaning I hadn't had a lot of the quantitative stuff. Okay. And I got a job because I had written an article that they published in their national or global newsletter, and I guess they felt then they had to hire me since they published something that I had written, and I worked <laughs> with them for a couple of years on big corporate clients. That's really where I started my many decades long relationship with different parts of um, the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, sure. and I worked with Hertz and Kellogg and large companies and really got some understanding about the basics of public relations and communication strategy, and when I looked ahead, there wasn't really a job that I wanted that I could see myself desiring, so when I looked at the senior management, it wasn't that there weren't people I respected, there were a lot of people that I respected but I didn't think I wanted those jobs. So if I was looking 5, 10, 20 years out, uh, I started to think maybe this isn't the place that I'm supposed to be in terms of an industry. 
So I went back to graduate school at Stanford and got my MBA, which I think was probably my greatest educational experience ever in terms of, you know, being at an age where you're smart enough to take advantage of the opportunities that you have in front of you from an educational standpoint and just the caliber of my classmates and fellow students and many of whom are now uh, friends and colleagues, it was really for me, a transformative experience and also very much a confidence builder. Sure. No, that's great. Was there any reason you picked Stanford other than just kind of the prestige of kind of Stanford? Because it's obviously on the other side of the country from kind of where you grew up and spent most of your life, correct? Yes. Well, luckily, we had had a lot of decisions um, and a lot of options to choose okay. from. I had just gotten married and um, my new husband and now current husband and I were trying to make some dual career educational decisions. Okay. And we had actually decided to stay on the East Coast. And then after months and months of pros and cons and why it made sense to stay on the west, the East Coast, just the lure of Stanford and the and the culture there and the kind of experience and the focus on entrepreneurship, all those things really were a pull and it turned out to be really the right place for me and a great decision and a great couple of years um, that we spent there. And I still feel like every day I continue to reap the rewards of that experience and those relationships. No, that's that's really great. So walk us through kind of your journey up until kind of what you're doing now, maybe some career highlights, because you've done a ton of stuff. We could probably just fill a show <laughs> on, on, on that, right? Well, it is funny because I, I do a lot of speaking with students and one of the things is anybody's story can look linear in retrospect, but when sure. you're going through it, you know, I'd love to say that it was a perfect plan and I followed every step according to plan, but, you know, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. So when I graduated from business school, I had this very clear idea that I wanted to be in consumer products marketing okay. and that I wanted to run a division of J&J. And I, I, I say that because I find it interesting that the biggest vision I could have is that I wanted to run a division okay. as opposed to I'm graduating with a Stanford MBA. I want to run the company. I just find that interesting as to, as to where I was. Why, so why, did that, this, why did that come to be? Like, what was, was there like a defining moment that made you kind of decide that or, or what was the rationale behind wanting to do that? I liked the idea that the products were relatable, that they were tangible. My okay. dad had worked for the same company from the uh, day he graduated from business school until the day he retired. So I think at that point, the idea that you join a company and you build your career and your life around it was appealing. And as you can see from subsequent choices I made, that those relationships have stayed important to me and critical, but sure. I really realized that I wanted to be much more in charge of my own career destiny and financial future. So I went there, which was quite unusual at that point, from Stanford. They didn't do a ton of recruiting from consumer products companies or healthcare companies on the East Coast. <clears throat> and I was able to find, you know, one or two scattered Stanford MBAs uh, who had been in the workforce at J&J and places like that. And anyway, this, this gives you a sense of how long ago it was. I got an interview because I wrote a letter to the vice president of market. Oh, wow. And then I was called in for an interview because, as I said, Stanford wasn't really on the parade route sure. of the traditional schools that they recruited in. And I remember at my first meeting and my first day I, I was hired and I worked on the Tylenol business, I was introduced to the group company chairman. He was, you know, the most senior guy. I was, you know, fresh and my, the ink was fairly dry on my um, business school degree. And the group company chairman says to the guy who hired me to VP of marketing, I didn't know we hired from Stanford, you know, oh. which wasn't exactly the, you know, the most welcoming greeting, but my boss said, we read our mail. And that literally is a true story. I got the job because I wrote a letter and then, you know, went through the whole traditional process. That's amazing. And man. I loved it. Yeah. I loved the experience. I was being trained by some of the smartest people that, I would say I've ever met wow. talented marketers, really good strategic thinkers, people who since then went on to great leadership roles within Johnson and Johnson and other companies, you know, other large, successful private and public companies. And as I said, um, those relationships yeah. and the connection with J&J that started in my first job after college has continued. And I've worked with 
with them, for them, with people who used to work there, you know, very consistently for close to 30 years. Wow, that's great. So that was a very important experience. I loved it. And then a couple years into it, um, we were, you know, still our dual career family. And my husband had this opportunity that made enough sense for us that we relocated. Uh, and that was very, very hard for me at the time. Okay. You know, it was, it's very hard. I don't know if it's a combination of being married or, or growing up, but until that point, you're pretty much making career decisions for yourself. So the sure. idea that um, I'm now making career decisions for two people, which, you know, often means it's never ideal for both of you. Sure. Um, so that was an interesting experience to go through. Anyway, my husband took a job in Central Connecticut, and I wound up working for a consulting company one of whose primary clients was J&J. So that's why oh, I was of interest to them and they were of interest to me. So I did work for that company for several years with a focus on how to extend the life of patents. Were there new indications? Were there new strategies? What were some of the things that the pharmaceutical businesses and the, you know, the drug portfolio could do to continue to generate revenue as the competitive landscape changed and new options came in and, and basically the, the landscape of care um, would change over the many years that the, the product had a patent. Got you. No, very cool. Then, yeah, and, and in the middle of that, I wound up getting pregnant with my first child, who's now 22. Wow. And okay. they sent me, you know, I remember having the discussion. It was never a question that I was going back to work full time. They sent me um, for seven or eight months. There was a local J&J project, which would have been a couple-hour drive, and then there was one in Europe, which was, you know, a seven- or eight-hour flight, um, and I would go for a solid week once a month wow. with, a new, with a newborn at home. Wow. And I did that for seven months and worked, you know, 24-7, and I remember literally saying to myself, if they're paying me $10 million a year, yeah. which they, I can promise you they weren't <laughs> in 1995, sure. um, that it almost wouldn't be worth it. The cost of it was too great. And I, and I felt like there were ways to do that job without that kind of travel. For me, sure. that doesn't mean people don't do it and they don't do it incredibly successfully. That job, to me, at that point, didn't, the risk reward and the cost reward um, didn't seem sufficient. So at that point, I joined... Um, an existing partnership with my now business partner of 20 years. She was working with someone else and I, I joined their partnership. Mm -hmm. And the focus really was a combination of the work that I still do, sure. which is focused on driving revenue growth, new customers, new insights, new positioning, new products, new geographies, um, line extensions, really all around how do you drive top line growth and focus really then and still do um, on pharmaceuticals, consumer products, women's health, and um, health and beauty. Sure. So how did you meet your business partner, just out of curiosity? It's a, it's a crazy story and probably doesn't make me sound like the best researcher, but I want to put it in perspective. Okay. So I go to interview with this agency, with this you know boutique consulting company, when my husband had accepted the job and I was doing some interviewing in Connecticut to, to look for a job that I thought fit my interests and my skills. And I spent a day there, and I met seven or eight men, which was fine. Okay, sure. You know, ranging in age from, you know, mid-20s probably to, to 50. Okay. 55, 60. And I said to the managing partner, do any women work here? Okay. Would there be a woman who works here that I might be able to meet? Sure. And this was in the so, 90s, just so we have the time frame? This was in 1994. Okay. So they said, Sure. Let me introduce you to Mary. Okay. So now remember, I said, do any women work here? Sure. I didn't say, are they 1099s or are they W-2s? I said, do any women work here? <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm in an office and I'm meeting this person, Mary, who, you know, to, to uh, ruin the uh, conclusion, became my business partner. But when I left that meeting, I said to my husband when I got home, I'd love to work at a place where a person of that caliber works. Okay. That was literally what I said. I said she's she's extraordinary. She's a great thinker. Um, she was a, she was and still is 13 years older than I was, and I just liked her perspective and her approach. She had been trained at Richardson Vicks and then Procter and Gamble.
And I just, there was an immediate connection, and I really felt like that was someone I could work with and learn from. Okay. Well, I no one told me that she was a freelancer. Oh, okay. So I'm going on and on about what an amazing uh, person works there, but she wasn't an employee. And we, <laughs> we joke about that story all the time. We That's worked awesome. together. She, she worked there full-time as a freelancer for the entire time that I was there. Wow. And when I, as I mentioned, when I decided that the sort of the work-life and uh, cost-reward ratios weren't working, Mary said, you know, why don't you come join me? Okay. At that time, we had another partner, but for the, the past basically 20 years, she and I have been the partners managing Spark Solutions for Growth, which again is focused on revenue growth with a particular focus on consumer, customer insights to drive a transaction. And okay. what I mean by that is, any business, whether you're selling a product or service, ultimately is about someone giving you currency for what you're offering. Right. And so our focus is, has been very pragmatic on what do you need to say, do, offer, communicate so that a person will either add your product or service to what they're currently doing, sure. replace it with something they're already using, or you know, potentially add a whole new behavior. Okay. So you know, in, the, in this most in the simplest example, if you're in the skincare business, are you going to have someone switch from cleanser A to cleanser B? Right. When Botox was launched, no one was using that. Are you, are you suggesting that people go from, I'm going to use, you know, night cream that doesn't really work to injections, which are a whole different mechanism of action. They deliver the benefit in an entirely different sure. way. How do you get people to try that? So really it's all about what is the fundamental driver that's going to make people engage um, in the business that you're in. So we did that for many, many years. And in 2008, um, when the <laughs> bottom was falling out of the financial markets and, yep. and Shearson and Lehman were, Shearson and Lehman was going bankrupt, as were many other companies, a venture capitalist presented us with a business plan for a product, a topically applied product that improves the arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women. Okay. So we said, wow, that looks interesting. And we thought we would go in and consult, and we went and met the management team and, and some of the board members, and we were fascinated by the category. As marketers, it was essentially the perfect storm. There had been 35 active clinical programs. At the time we saw this business, there were two, um, and that's due to a number of reasons. One, it's a complicated regulatory process, and two women's sexual response is a very complicated set of systems. And when I say that, I mean physiological symptoms, systems, psychological, contextual, behavioral. So it's a hard problem to solve, if you will. Sure. Women didn't have a language. There was really no communication. If you looked online, it was porn or disease. Sure. And yeah. obviously we made some progress in that. So we thought it was fascinating. You know, which is one of the few categories, the only category really in the dozens that we've worked on, and I've worked with women from the tops of their heads to the tips of their toes, that women didn't speak to their friends about, to their partners, to their, certainly not to their mothers, to their aunts, and the majority, the vast majority didn't speak to their doctors about it. Sure. So we got really excited. We go into this meeting. We come to find out that the company had a very complex financial structure. There were 165 individual shareholders. Wow. So we're like, interesting company, interesting product, you know, they need, they need to raise a lot of money. And we just had gone in with different expectations. But when we went in, we didn't know they were looking to raise money. They had invited us in as strategic consultants. And we, you know, joke around that we said, well, we were looking in our pockets to see if we could, you know, scrounge together a million dollars and lose change, which is what they wanted okay. um, at that meeting. So we said, you know, great to meet you, fascinating company. And we sort of just kept it in the back of our minds, and we kept working and doing our thing. And a couple of months later, the asset, the core product, which was a patented blend of botanical oils and extracts, was made available, and we raised venture capital with a partner, a venture capital partner, and we bought the asset. Okay, interesting. And fast, so we met the company April 30th. This was July 15th. Fast forward September 2nd. Um, we own the assets. We've raised um, $3 million in venture capital at that point, or three and a half. Wow. We have a certificate that says we can do business in the state of New Jersey, um, and we're supposedly ready to go. 
and but you can't build a business. Once we bought the assets, we had spent most of the money to buy the assets. Okay. We now needed to raise money to grow the company, to create the company and grow the company. So, as I said, in 2008, with you know fairly bleak um, financial times, my business partner and I go out to the West Coast and we meet with Silicon Valley investors you know, two women who they considered first-time entrepreneurs because we had never raised venture capital before, even though we had run a successful company for at least a decade at that wow. point. That's, and, that's and crazy. Talking, yeah. yeah, and we're talking about vaginas. So as you might imagine, you know, that certainly is a whole show and one of the inspirations for the book that, I, sure. that you mentioned that, I, that is coming out um, next month, which is almost like the triple whammy, where women, we're first-timers, and we're talking about vaginas. Got you. Yeah. So, so many funny stories. We ultimately did raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars of venture capital, and we were able to retool the company. And we essentially all we kept was the fundamental asset, which was this product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction. Um, we changed just the packaging. We changed the fragrance. We changed the business model. Um, we changed a whole, essentially everything you could change. Okay. Um, we turned it from a primarily retail business into 50-50 um, direct-to-consumer and retail. And in the course of that, you know, we became entrepreneurs, which was a term that Abby Allen, who's this brilliant journalist at the New York Times and other places, coined. And, you know, I trademarked it a few years ago just because it's such a good shorthand for what we do. Sure. No, I, I think that's that's really great. And I, I do want to cover the book, but I, I want to dive a little bit deeper into what you guys do at Spark. Like, I think you covered it, but I, just for people to be clear, because I think you guys do kind of a, a bunch of other things as well, and you kind of mentioned it, but what exactly do you guys kind of do at Spark? So we are called in to solve prob business problems. Okay. And one of the fundamental principles we have is, you know, Albert Einstein said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Totally. So often we're called in when a company or a brand has is trying to figure out how to grow um, or change or increase distribution or launch new products, and they're finding that they're unable to. So they will call us in, and the first thing that we do is really focused very specifically on what is the business problem you're trying to solve. Okay. At the end of the day, if this is successful, what does your business look like? What have we accomplished? So we, st we often start with a lengthy discussion on that because in many cases, we've come to find out over the years of doing this that sometimes the question or the business objective might not even be the one that needs to be answered in order to achieve the goal. So let me give you a very specific example. We sure. were called in by an iconic brand who had always been number one in a particular category and another technology, and I don't mean that, you know, bits and bytes, um, technology in, in a consumer product context could right. be a new ingredient, um, a new delivery system. So in any case, this company had been number one in their category for 40 years and wow. another company had come in with another ingredient, another approach and some marketing that really was quite disruptive. And for the first time in their history, this company was number two in its category. And this brand was fundamental to the definition of this whole organization. Okay. So they said, we want to be, we want to be number one again. And we want every new mom, which was where they were focused to use our product. Okay. So before we even started, Mary and, and I did a little bit of work and said, well, you know, there are 4 million live births a year. If every single woman in the country used this and no business has 100% penetration, sure. you wouldn't achieve your business goal. Oh, wow. So there has to be another target, another consumer group that you would need to motivate to use your product if, in fact, your objective is to become the number one in volume and share again. So that's a particular example. And then we focus on who might also be inspired by the same benefits that this product offers. What is the heritage? What's the legacy? What does it stand for? What are consumers looking for? Um, what research does the company have that they've spent tons of money on? What do thought leaders within the company believe? What do thought leaders external to the company believe? And ultimately, when you integrate all that and synthesize that, and what I've just described is probably an eight to 16 week project, sure. come out with recommendations as to this is the positioning right. to drive interest from your core target and your, your secondary target. 
these are these are the kinds of messages that will motivate them. And here's what we think the almost the revised footprint of the brand should be. You know, any long-standing iconic brand, you know, it's very dangerous to tamper with what they fundamentally stand for. But can you expand it so you can you can catalyze and solicit interest from new customers? So we take a very strategic focus with existing information, secondary information, and primary research to answer the business business question, which in this case is how do I achieve number one share? Sometimes it's how do I um, how do I get people to enter a new category? That's sure. one of the things that you face over and over again when you're in the female um, sexual health and wellness space, which is in a lot of these categories, women are using nothing. So you're trying oh, to replace inactivity with a product right. or, or a set of activities. So, you know, the challenge is always different depending on where the category is right. and where the brand is. And that's what keeps it exciting. Um, so as a result of the work that we did with the female health business that I spoke about that we subsequently sold at the end of 2013, we have focused, you know, it's probably an oxymoron to say almost exclusively, but, you know, very in a very targeted way on businesses and brands in the space of providing new solutions, new products and services for this broad category of women's sexual health and wellness, sure. which could be menstruation, fertility, infertility, incontinence, um, menopause, hormonal changes, you know, you name it. If it's right. something a woman goes through over the course of her life, there are tons of needs. And finally now, over the past couple of years, a real groundswell from amazing entrepreneurs and really interesting, you know, established companies trying to find better solutions. Sure. Yeah, and, and just like looking at your, your kind of client list, I don't need to name any people and go to like sparksolutionsforgrowth.com and check it out. Like you guys have worked with some of the biggest brands on on the planet, right? So it, that's that's really cool that you guys have been able to do this, you know, for these huge brands, right? Yeah, and it really is. It's, it's quite lucky. And part of that I attribute to the fact that I was trained at J&J and that those relationships and being part of that family sure. um, is something that has really served my career well. In fact, today I have at least half a dozen clients who have been clients at J&J and have gone on to other ventures, and they've been my clients for 20 years wow. as they change roles. That's really great. Uh, the, yeah, the other piece is, um, as I mentioned, Mary was at Richardson Dix. Um, it was acquired by Procter & Gamble. And there were a whole bunch of marketers and business people who, after the acquisition, did not necessarily want to move from Connecticut to Ohio oh, for any number of reasons. And they all got interesting jobs in the tri-state area, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Sure. And they also became the foundation of a lot of our work. So it was a it was a combination of experience, existing relationships, and then good relationships and good work. We get more relationships and more good work. Sure. So you're you're coming out with a book. What was what made you decide to finally, you know, take a lot of time out of your day and write a book? Because it's it's a lot of work to do it. Yeah, I really had no idea. I think it's just like entrepreneurship, ignorance is bliss. You all right. don't know what you're jumping into all the time, <laughs> which is probably a good thing or fewer people would do it. Sure. Um, when we were running the female sexual health business, one of the business challenges that we faced was we couldn't get people to take our money for advertising. So when I say that, I mean we went to 100 outlets, network, cable, website, radio, and 95% of them said, we won't take your money to advertise because we're not comfortable with your category. Okay. And as a result of you know, banging our heads against the wall in a, in a more traditional way of trying to get clearance, and that's what you do with the networks, so that's what you did at the time at Networks and Cable, and you go in and basically ask for approval of the content, no matter what we did. If we made the ads like other ads on TV, um, if we took out any, you know, reference to sex, sexuality, arousal, you name it, so it wouldn't even you wouldn't even know what you were selling. You could have been selling a tissue for as descriptive as the ads could be. No matter what we did, we couldn't get people to take our money. Okay. And we decided, which is just, you know, a crazy thing to say. We have money, we have a product, um, we have two uh, published clinical studies, it works. There's traction. We're in Walmart. 
and they would say, you know, no, thank you, we're not comfortable, with really out any good reason. But that became the catalyst for our business strategy, which was if we can't buy media, we're going to earn it. Sure. So we set about finding a partner, and this took a while as well, um, a PR partner who said, you know what, the fact that you can't give people money for your ads on your product, Mm -hmm. that's a story. So basically, um, it took us a year to find the right partner, but we then found um, Dan Thurman Public Relations that's run by uh, Diane Thurman, who's become an amazing uh, partner and and a friend and someone I've worked with many times since. And she said, you know what, this is a story. And, you know, long story short, because nothing happens uh, this quickly in, in real time, once we got the campaign together, on a Tuesday, the story broke in the New York Times. On a Wednesday, the product was featured on The View and Good Morning America. Wow. The following Tuesday, Mary and I did a, a nine-minute segment on ABC News, really about the disparity between men and women's advertising. And it was in that role that I became sort of this spokesperson uh, for this world of female health. It really started out as a business strategy. And the more I did it, um, the more I loved it, and the more I found it exciting, and the more I met fascinating people. So fast forward many years after the exit of that company and working with many, many other entrepreneurs, uh, I said, there's a book in here somewhere. Okay. And it came about, I'd always done a ton of writing. I've probably published 70 articles at this point in Inc., Huffington Post, you know, you name it. I've been writing for a very long time, often sure. about female health and business and things that interest me. Okay. So I was at a meeting just about two years ago, and a woman, and I do a lot of public speaking as a result of all that work. And a woman said to me, "You know what, Rachel? It's really boring to talk about leadership and entrepreneurship. Everybody does it. Mm-hmm. Not Rachel. You're boring. But like, how can I distinguish you talking about leadership from somebody else? Sure." said, you should talk about this in the context of what you do. You should call it orgasmic leadership. Okay. I said, that's the greatest name I ever heard. <laughs> that's awesome. But I, but I can guarantee you no one's hiring me or sending out an email or a post or circulating something in the organization saying, come here, someone talk about orgasmic leadership. I said, when I get there, without fail, they want me to talk about this category. Okay. The business of this category and the stories are fascinating and they're, you know, it's tongue in cheek and there aren't that many people who love talking about it and, and don't get embarrassed by it and who find it so exciting. Now there are more and more actually. Sure. So I just filed that away and I said, great title. I can't use that or I'll never get hired. And I, I do a couple of speaking engagements, big speaking engagements a month, you know, to the J&Js of the world or conferences, universities and business schools. You know, wide range of organizations and to a one, no one's terribly comfortable and, and would ever approve of, oh, great, let's, let's advertise that Rachel's coming to talk about orgasmic leadership. So a couple of months later, I'm just sitting, I just was sitting on a couch about to write an article for Huffington Post, and I said, that's a great idea for a book. Six months after this woman said it to me. So I just sent out an email to people that I'd worked with in the space in a wide range of roles in women's health and wellness. And I said, you know, I'd like to interview you, do a structured interview um, about your experience because I don't think my hypothesis was no one wakes up and says, gosh, I really want to be a vagipreneur. You know, this is what I was born to do. This is what I was meant to do. Um, And I was just quite interested in the challenges that people faced and how they were getting around it. So fast forward, I started interviewing then and writing in earnest last May I completed over three dozen interviews with just brilliant founders, co-founders, entrepreneurs, um, healthcare providers, educators, social entrepreneurs, all around women's health and wellness. And the outcome of that was my book called Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. And in addition to providing some background on why I'm interested in it because of my experience, I basically use these entrepreneurs to highlight some fundamental business principles and what this category of businesses demonstrates about what opportunities exist, what solutions people come up with, and what challenges they face in a broader business context. Sure. No, I, so I, I focus on... Keep going, sorry. 
So I focus on technology and new business models and um, new distribution approaches, creative solutions, you know, better solutions to existing problems, a new model around social impact, which is really one of my favorites. So, so many of these women, who, most of them tend to be women who found these uh, female health companies, start with an idea that they have a problem that doesn't have a solution. They come up with a solution and say, wow, there's a lot of us who have this problem. Let's build a business around it. And many of them still also have a component of giving back, of supporting, of reaching down and giving people a hand. Sure. But what's fascinating to me, one of the themes that I see when looking at these companies is it's no longer the model of buy a pair of shoes, give a pair of shoes, which is amazing. Okay. It's gone further, which is, you know, buy a pair of shoes, and in this case, buy sanitary protection, teach someone else how to make it so that they not only have a solution, but now they have an economic engine. Yeah. So they can, they have solutions for menstrual protection, and they now have a business where they could sell to other women who need the same who, who need the same products. Right. And I just think that is just, just one example of literally dozens, if not hundreds, where the people starting companies and building brands in this space are so creative and so thoughtful and so smart, not only from a business perspective, because the, this all comes back to business. Sure. If you're spending money and not generating any revenue, it's a very, you know, after some period of time, it's a very expensive hobby. But in the context of building these for-profit businesses, the problems they're solving, the impact they're making, and the opportunities they're creating for other people are just astounding. There are statistics that talk about the just horrifying number of days a week, days a month, that girls in developing countries miss school every month when they're menstruating because they don't have good solutions. Wow. That's really sad, actually. It's sad, but it's also so exciting that there are so many businesses now coming up to find solutions for those. Sure. So would you say that society as a whole is kind of getting better and kind of more accepting of this? Have you, you noticed that? Like it, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you start to see more of these types of products getting kind of ads on TV and getting support and being kind of played in just – you know, regular kind of online or, or TV out, like just kind of during prime time. Is that fair to say, or is, are we still like way, way behind? Um, the answer is yes and yes. Okay. So we are making progress and we are still way behind. So okay. let me give you a couple of examples. Sure. So CB Insights, um, which is a, a research organization, produced this great, what they call a Femtech map about um, a year and a half ago. And what it shows is the dozens of companies that is in this broad definition of the Femtech world, which is solutions for many of the problems that we've been thinking about. And they've they've captured that these companies have raised over $1.1 billion. um, In four companies focused exclusively on on servicing the needs of of women with particular problems or benefits that they're looking for. And that number continues to increase. So there are a lot more companies. There's a lot more funding. There's a lot more discussion. There are a lot more groups of women, people, men, investors who are seeing the value of this category. So a thousand percent we're making progress. Sure. These companies are growing. They're gaining distribution. And they're doing many of the things that businesses are required to do to grow. Yeah. Full stop. On the other hand, we still have major, major societal discomfort with the whole category. Okay. Now, it varies. So fertility seems to make people more comfortable or less uncomfortable than talking about menstruation or even, God forbid, arousal, which makes people crazy. Okay, um, sure. I want to give you a particular example of that. Sure. Several years ago, the, the New York Times did a, an article. The New York Times Magazine had a cover article that was said unexcited is there a pill for that. And they basically were saying, talking about the products that were under development to improve desire and arousal and satisfaction for women. And that it was one of the few categories where in clinical studies, there was certainly a faction of people who didn't want the products to work too well, lest there be, and I'm using the double quotation marks, air quotes, sex craze binges of infidelity. 
you know, the idea being that if we found products that actually helped the 43% of women who have sexual concerns and difficulties, that there would be bedlam in the streets. That women wow. would be, I don't know, running, running around naked. Who knows what they were afraid of? You know, and to which my response is, you know, I didn't know that there was panic in the streets because there are men running around with four-hour erections. But that's just to give you an example. There's this, you know, inherent fear of the power of female sexuality. Are we getting better? Yes. Are there more businesses? Yes. But even today, and as I said, I interviewed over three dozen companies. Sure. Many, many, many of them, probably more than 50% who have tried to get on Facebook, still to this day, in 2018, their ads are not approved on Facebook really? because the appropriate is not considered, the content is not considered appropriate. Interesting. So, and this is in a context where, you know, there are pedophile sites and well, yeah. terrorism sites and things that are universally considered, um, hopefully universally considered grossly inappropriate, if not offensive. Sure. So that's a long way of saying yes on a number of dimensions. There are great victories every day, which is why I stay in this and why I continue to work with companies and why I continue to make sure I'm inspired and I meet people who are making progress. Sure. But there are still big societal barriers to to having this explode the way that it should. And when I say the way that it should, in response to the unmet needs that are out there and the folks who are clamoring for solutions. No, I 100% I agree. And I, I love people like yourself that are, you know, kind of not only promoting it, but also doing it, right? And helping others do it as well, right? And I think that's the only way things in society do change. And the one thing that kind of shocked me, and I, I don't know if this is a little bit of a tangent, but just like <clears throat> I have two kids now, a three-year-old daughter and a, just a one-year-old son. And there was certain things that you learn about kind of after you have kids that like nobody ever talks about. Like, And the best example I can have that is like how complicated or difficult breastfeeding can be or not be right for certain people and like yeah nobody talked about that until we had kids and like you your other your people in your friend group are going through that right and so I get that's a bit of a tangent but I, I think it's something that is related to kind of what we're talking about that nobody talks about things that basically people go through if you do certain things in your life like if you have kids you will you will potentially go through that if you choose to like breastfeed your children right so like yeah. stuff like that is is amazing to me that that stuff isn't necessarily like taught or talked about more kind of openly because i think I know like there was days that it really upset my wife that, you know, when we went to the nurses and, you know, doctors and, and stuff like that. And then you kind of realize like, oh, a lot of people struggle with this and it's totally normal. But like until you figure that out, you kind of we're like freaking out. Right. Right. And you think that you're alone and you yeah. think that there's no one else who's had this experience. And, you know, certainly in the case of being a young mother, yeah. our young parent, young yeah. father, you know, you are made to feel almost guilty totally you know? so there are many companies that i spoke that i've spoken to in the course of this book who have interesting better um solutions for helping women breastfeed in terms of new devices for pumping sure but your example is so on point kevin because in any of these categories you could be having the same discussion sure where i hear from women all day i had no idea this is what happens in menopause totally. i had no idea that after i had a baby that i would experience this incontinence yeah. I had no idea that, you know, it's totally normal if I, you know, if my husband and I or my partner and I are having trouble you know, getting back into the groove of an intimate relationship sure. or that it might even hurt to be intimate in a physical way after having a baby. All of these things are the reasons that I still remain so, 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 so motivated sure. to be in this because I, there's you know, two steps forward, maybe one step back, but there's so many people like you and it's not just women, it's men and women sure. who want to be in the conversation about better solutions. Sure. And, and you know how it is. Like you start Googling some of this stuff and, you know, sometimes it's really great advice. Sometimes it's like, 
oh, have you ever had a headache and been tired and you're probably dying, right? And everywhere in between. Right, you have a brain tumor, exactly. Yeah, and you're like, exactly. uh, and, and I think that it's scary, right? Where if, if somebody just said, look, this is totally normal, you know, you'll probably go through this, uh, then you would be like, okay, I, I'm not alone in this, right? And I think, so I, right. I totally commend what you guys are doing. You know, that's partly why I really wanted to kind of have you back on the show to talk about this, some of this stuff, because I went through some of this stuff, maybe not me like physically, but you know, when you're trying to support your wife going through some of this stuff, like it's trying on you as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, And I think what you raise is a very important issue for many of these problems and for many of these discussions, unless it's society-wide, unless it's men and women and people of all sexual orientations and backgrounds, um, until those conversations are happening, um, you know, I don't think we're going to be where we need to be. Sure. But luckily, you know, certainly for the experience that you're talking about, there are so many resources now, supportive online communities, um, <clears throat> places where you can go and speak to other people with sure. like experiences. But picture, you know, having been a young father 40 years ago. Oh, I don't even know how people did it. Like it's there was no, there were no resources. There totally. was no one to talk to. Um, so, you know, I'd like to really focus on the forward motion totally, and just be realistic about how far we still have to go. No, I, I, I 100% agree. Uh, you also mentioned throughout the show that you, you also do a lot of kind of speaking engagements. What exactly do you kind of cover and, and why is it still so important? I, I'm sure I know the answer to that, but I, I really want to kind of mention that you you do these speaking series so it started as i mentioned as a business strategy that we okay. had to get this message out when we couldn't pay for it sure um because our, you know as i say your money's no good here um and then it really became something that i found that i was that i enjoyed that i found energizing that most importantly drove the business yeah. and i found myself in really amazing conversations with people saying very similar things to what you said, which is, wow, I wish I had known that. You know, sure. I wish I knew about that organization. I wish I knew about that product. And because this exacerbates, you know, the that women, they take a woman in business and then put her in female sexual health, and then there's words that no one's comfortable um, hearing. I mean, I did a speaking engagement even in the last few weeks where, you know, very progressive organization, but I was told that I couldn't say sexual, I couldn't say libido, I couldn't say the name of my book. And here's an organization that's devoted to promoting women and women in business. So I find that the, the benefit for me and the benefit for the people that I speak with and the collaborative learning is around figuring out how to find your own voice, which I certainly had to in this space, and then using sort of almost the most extreme example of where it's difficult to find your voice from a business perspective and giving examples of how I've done it and people who inspire me incredibly how they've done it and how they continue to do it. Sure. And if it motivates one person to not give up, man or, man or woman, to continue to try to raise money, to you know stick it out one more quarter, to figure out how they can keep the lights on, if in any way any of this is inspiring to someone, either from my story or the dozens of other brilliant people that I meet and interview, um, then I'm happy. Then I feel like in some small way, I'm moving the conversation forward. Sure. Well, but I also think too, that it's like just from a strictly business perspective and forget about all the other kind of stuff. There are so many things that could be kind of created either maybe just from like, uh, technology, hardware, kind of software, just products. I, I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. Like in, in the space, if people just had the conversation and started funding some of this stuff, right? Is that fair to say? Yes. And, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and they're having these conversations more and more. And more of sort of the brand name investors are supporting things like this. And there are also many more sources of capital um, specifically available for women and devoted to 
women, you know, given the disparity in the funds that go behind women investors and the disparity in, in terms of the male-female decision makers. Sure. And that's not to say, I don't, I don't care who invests in this. It doesn't have to be a man or a woman. Right. It has to be a person who sees the value of solving these problems. Fair enough. No, and so the more sense. people... <laughs> the more people who see it, the better it is for everyone. So I had mentioned fertility earlier. Yeah. You know, I've, I've spoken to a bunch of, you know, the people in the book are either have been clients, people that I've been on panels with, and some that I literally only know through being in the same industry. Interesting. And I've gotten to know them better through the course of interviewing them and interacting with them for the book. Um, you know, if it's an issue like fertility and anybody in the room has struggled with infertility, mm-hmm. you know, you're more likely to get a yes. What I found is that for women raising businesses or men raising businesses in this space, there's a different validation mechanism. And what I mean by that is if, a, if an investor is presented with a technology idea mm-hmm. that is a product that he will he or she will never use, mm-hmm. they rarely ask the question, well, if this isn't relevant to me, how could it be relevant to anybody else? Right. You often hear that, in the conversations when you're raising money around women's health. Okay. So I would hear over and over again, you know, this can't be a problem. My wife never mentioned it to me. Okay. And given the fact that 43% of, of women have sexual concerns and difficulties over some point in their life, I'm pretty sure it's not because there are no women married to the men in the room who haven't had those experiences. Sure. But if it's fertility and they say, oh, I get that because I know someone who's experienced it, then the conversation is a little easier. But that idea that I have to be the customer to understand is a standard that's placed, I think, inequitably against female health businesses versus some of the other businesses that these investors say. Yeah, interesting. But Rachel, we're we're coming to the end of the show. So... Let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about Spark and uh, where they can get the book. And anything else you want to mention? Terrific. Yeah. So all the stuff we talked about um, is on www.sparksolutions with an S for growth.com. The book, as I mentioned, is Orgasmic Leadership. It will be available on Amazon um, on May 15th. So I'm really excited about that. And I really really look forward to um, any feedback that people have, you know, good, bad, and ugly. I, I think if, it, if the conversation, if the book generates some increased conversation, passionate conversation, then it will have achieved many of the things uh, that I hope for. That's really and great. I'm always happy for people to reach out to me directly um, at rbsherall at sparksolutionsforgrowth.com uh, to continue these very important conversations. Perfect. Rachel, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and you have a good rest of your day, and we'll talk soon. Thanks so much, Kevin. Have a great day. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also, check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show, and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com, and keep building the future. 